Hello and welcome to the Auto Buyer's Guide podcast powered by Alex on Autos. I'm Tim Masso here with the car czar himself, Alex Dykes. Alex, even hey everybody. Buyer's Guide. Yes. So Hello. I have had some questions about this. Uh, lots of lots of questions, really. As Alex Nottis is transitioning towards the name Auto Buyer's Guide, we started EV Buyer's Guide for EV stuff, and people have noticed, hey, there's like occasional EV content on both channels. What gives? Um, what gives is we are still trying to sort out exactly what content appears where. And one initial thought that we had, my editor and I, was maybe we could do short videos on the EV on the Alex Nottis channel and then have a much deeper dive over on EV Buyer's Guide. So, you know, 10 minute somethings there, 30 minute things on the other side, all details and pricing comparisons on the other side. And, uh, that confused a lot of people. So I don't think we're gonna do that going forward. Going forward, I suspect that all full EV reviews are only gonna be on EV Buyer's Guide. Uh, there may be a just a brief intro video, maybe 30 seconds that says, hey, this exists. You can find it over there. We might do that, we'll see. And then EV Buyer's Guide will have more e detailed EV information. You know, what is an EVSE, what are, how charge times are calculated, that kind of stuff, just different content going on. Is there going to be any more cross-pollination as EVs generally just become cars and we stop calling them electric cars? Hmm. This is an interesting area? question. I am a environmentalist pessimist. You know, I live off the grid. I have EVs, et cetera. So I'm deep down the green rabbit hole. But I am under no illusion that we are going to transition to full electrification anytime soon. I think that, you know, Volvo might be able to do it. Volvo says they're going all electric by 2030. Sure, they can do that. They're a tiny EV company. And if General Motors actually does this, I will eat my hat in 20 years. I don't believe that General Motors or Ford or Stellantis or Toyota or Honda are actually going to be able to make that kind of transition in that time period. You'll notice that a lot of them are really hedging their bet. They're calling it electrification. You know, we're electrifying things by then, which includes plug-in hybrids and hybrids. Now, I will buy that by, by 2030, 2032, 2042, let's say, that most everything could be a hybrid or plug-in hybrid. I just have a hard time believing that there's going to be a heavy-duty electric pickup truck, heavy-duty full-size vans, campers, RVs, all that kind of stuff, or necessarily inexpensive vehicles for people who need to drive long distances. I think you know something like the Nissan Versa will always hang out. So there's no chance that in the near term, we're going to wind up with an EV buyer's guide channel taking over the Alex properties and then auto buyer's guide being just Stellantis products. I uh, I don't imagine that, but who knows what the future holds? <laughs> that's fair. That's fair. So now we've also got a question about value. It's a word that gets thrown around a lot, and I think people mischaracterize it to just mean cheap things generally. Mm. When you hear the word value, Viewers are asking, how do you interpret that in a car sense these days? Yes, this is interesting because I got some questions on this from viewers simultaneously while talking to some other auto journalists that I know, and I'm not going to throw under the bus directly here. But the conversation went something along the lines of, 
Uh, I like this EV. It's so much better than the Polestar 2. The Polestar 2 is so nasty and cheap. You know, my my grandmother got in it and she said, ah, I like that Mercedes you had better. To which my response was, you're talking about an EQS. You're talking about a vehicle that is three times the cost of the Polestar. The Polestar has a starting price around $40-something thousand, has a tax credit still on it, pretty darn cheap. Of course it's going to be cheap, just like the Chevy Bolt. You didn't pay a lot for it, set your expectations accordingly. But is something better than something else is a different construct than is it a good value? Is it a good value is what do you get for the cash you paid for it? For me, it's always difficult to compare something that's relatively less expensive to something that's relatively more expensive. Like when I hear the word value, I generally think of very, very targeted, you know, designs. I think of work trucks offering a certain amount of value in terms of durability, longevity, manufacturer parts support, accessories availability, towing capacity, load capacity. These are all elements that are value factors when you're buying a work truck. You're gonna have completely different priorities when you're looking at something like a Polestar 2, where mm -hmm. first of all, you shouldn't be comparing it to other similar vehicles. And second, you need to look at what a person shopping an EV considers to be value. Uh, things like, is it gonna save me money? Is it gonna reduce my gas dependence? Is it going to be sufficient for my personal needs? Um, you know, Am I gonna be able to charge it in road trip? Things like that, those are their considerations. And I think it's just impossible generally to compare a more expensive product to a much less expensive product. Why a lot of uh, EV and gas powered car comparisons are also nuts because oftentimes the EV is the most expensive one they can find and the gas powered car costs like half as much. So value has got to be very specific to what you're looking at. If you're an off-roader, it's going to be a Jeep Rubicon, even though it's neither efficient nor cheap. Right. Value is is a complicated construct if you if you if you let yourself get taken over by some of the extremes but when it comes to segmentation of automotive vehicle of automotive car uh, okay brian edit that one out um when it comes to talking about vehicles especially within certain segments you can easily have a construct of rav4 gives you these features for this price uh, then we take a look at a CRV or a Ford Escape. Why is one more expensive than the other? Generally speaking, the answer for why a RAV4 is more expensive than a base whatever is that it has a lot more standard feature content on it. And that's really true in the modern era where Toyota has been really aggressive at putting a lot of driver assistance tech on their vehicles. But then there are other vehicles where you take a look at their starting price tag, and I would say singling one manufacturer out at the moment would be Honda at the moment. You look at the pilot's price tag and you say, why is it so expensive? And there isn't necessarily a good answer. So that's where the value proposition comes in. You'd compare a base pilot to a base Highlander to a base Palisade, base Telluride. What are you getting for the money? How do these features even out, et cetera? And then you have to assign some sort of relative value to those features that you're getting. And for that, you could take a look at some of the publications out there that actually value, you know, what is the cost or the worth of a heated seat or automatic climate control versus manual climate control. That data is available. And then you can make that calculation and decide how the value proposition works. And sometimes when you're looking at a single model or you're looking at a single product line and, you know, there's clear value at the lower price points, consider 
for example, something like a Corvette. This is an extreme example because no one buys a Corvette because it's good value. But for the amount of performance you get in a Z51 C8, you really need the Z06. And the same thing is often true in electric vehicles where everyone gets the same basic power plant, but trim levels jack up the price dramatically. And if your idea of value is economical operation, it may not make sense to go with the most fully loaded version of an EV or a gas-powered car. I'll also add this. To me, when I hear the word value, especially in this market, I think used cars. And there's a bit of a myth that you can't get a used car that's a good value these days. You're going to have to pay some sort of um, premium just because of market conditions, supply chains, and the scarcity of new inventory. You can go on Auto Trader right now and find Chevy Volts from the second generation that give you 50 miles of electric range that run on regular gas, not premium like the first generation. You can pick these things up with less than $50,000 uh, 50,000 miles, I should say, for like 23, 24, 25,000 bucks. You can find the Mile Hybrid Buick Lacrosse, a full-size car that gets 35 miles per gallon on the highway. You can get these things well-equipped, used. Again, just go on Auto Trader. You can find them all day long for 25000 dollars $32,000. The same is true with something like a Volkswagen Atlas, which if you're not stemming on Jeep Grand Cherokee, can be a fine, bloated, all-wheel drive family barge. And again, you can... <laughs> Buy them all day long for under 40 grand in fully loaded SEL premium trim. So used cars for mm -hmm. me represent value writ large because now you've got every product category available. You just have to look. Value is a construct that does not work in a vacuum is probably the most important thing for people to, to really, I guess, grasp. You cannot say this car is a good value without a comparison. It does not work that way. So, and the comparison matters. So a, a you know, a Corvette may not be a good value compared to a Hyundai Veloster N, but it is a good value when compared against a Porsche 911. It is fantastically cheap compared to a 911 uh, or any mid-engine sports car, which is the unique twist about the current generation Corvette. I think the Corvette currently is a fantastic value. Just look at an Acura NSX, not a fantastic value <laughs> for a mid-engine supercar like it once was. And so that's the, the tricky part there. And that includes even used cars. So you can take a look at a used car and you can take a look at a comparable new car and you can say, well, you know, what am I getting for my money? How much is that, that new car warranty worth to me? How much is the mileage that is on the used car worth as far as a deduction off of its value? All of that is, is theoretically possible within those constructs as well. Yeah. And it's just, worth remembering like when you're looking for value in a market like this which is abnormal i don't think i've ever seen an automotive sales environment like this in my life um you know a kia telluride's a really nice truck but for ten thousand dollars over list it is worth looking for those three-year-old used vw atlases especially <laughs> if you pay 35 to forty thousand bucks because a sixty thousand dollar telluride does not make much sense objectively i would call that a bad value Yes. The tricky part there, of course, is that if no one bought it new, you're not going to buy it used. So, you know, used car world depends on the new car world. They they can't really be interlinked, uh, be, can't really be pulled apart necessarily in that same way. So there are definitely new car people and there are definitely used car people and uh, they don't normally cross pollinate too, too much. There aren't honestly aren't that many people that will repeatedly flip-flop between markets, buy a used car, buy a new car, buy a used car, buy a new car, they generally tend to fall in silos. And on average, there are about 14, 13 to 14 million Americans every year that have decided that's going to be me. I'm going to buy the new one. Yeah. And that is profoundly bizarre because 
Folks, I'm telling you, if you want the best value, always buy a used car. Cars have never lasted longer than they do right now. <laughs> when was the last time you heard about someone having to decoke a cylinder head at 30,000 miles? I mean, that is so bad that it makes the Mazda RX-8 look like a Toyota. Like, there are things <laughs> you don't worry about anymore, like carburetor rebuilds, like valve adjustments, things that are lost. I'm going to be very self-serving, though, and remind you that if nobody, if everybody followed your advice, I would be out of a job. But also, given a few years, there would be no used cars for them to buy. Yeah, but now cars don't rust out. Remember when you used to have a car rust out in like three sure. years of driving in New England weather, and you'd have a brand new car, and by the end of it, it would look like, like a compost heap? But, but I'll say this. There has to be somewhere for the California cars to go. That's true. That's where they go to die. They go to die in the Northeast. Okay. This is not going to become yep. used car. This is not going to become used auto buyers, God. I promise you that. Okay. So jumping on from this discussion of value to a discussion of absurd, absurdly bad value, like literally the paragons of bad value. Do you prefer the Cadillac Escalade V, newly available, or the Hummer EV? Which would you pick? with your uh, conspicuous consumption ultra truck money? I would definitely Escalade. Really? I like the Escalade's interior and it is significantly lighter than the Hummer. The Hummer is just too crazy. It's also, I'm very torn on the Hummer because I, I like that it exists. And if you want that kind of conspicuous consumption, that is for you. And if you're the kind of truck nuts, coal rolling guy that might want to tiptoe into the electric world, then this is the vehicle for you. Uh, for the rest of us, it's not a great truck. I mean, it is enormously heavy. The thing is fantastically large, fantastically heavy. It's going to eat you out of house and home in a way that the Escalade is not necessarily going to. And I am the first person to really dismiss what worries about charging times, except for the Hummer, because it is really slow. Okay, so here's the thing. I'm looking at these two options, and the first thing I realize is that the Escalade is bizarrely huge. The short one is 212 inches long. The long one is 227 inches. And by the way, you can get the Escalade V on either one. So considering there's a Hummer SUV coming that's going to be under 200 inches long, already I've got an advantage there in actually driving the thing on a daily basis. Then you've got the four-wheel steering on the Hummer, which I think is 10 degrees out back, which makes this thing almost reasonable when you're not doing crazy things with it. But it's the price that I can't get over. The Escalade V costs $150,000. And if we're talking about the SUV Hummer that's coming, I get a $45,000 discount over the Escalade just for picking the Hummer. There's got to be something I can do with forty-five dollars um, I mean, if I want to road trip the Hummer at that point, I can just put it on a flatbed and have it driven wherever I want to go. Like it's, it's so much cheaper. And it's 830 horsepower yeah. versus, you know, 680. Power, man. I just... The Escalade just comes across as a better thought out vehicle. And I would remind you on the size with the Escalade, uh, my Chrysler LHS, which was a 2000 year sedan, was 208 inches long. So things have actually shrunk a bit. You know, there was a time where we had bigger, crazier things. And the Escalade's not, not really that hard to park because America was designed Parking stalls in America were designed for 1960s Cadillacs with fins that were five miles long. 
it was, but it's the funny thing is though just that the the Hummer is that much smaller than the Escalade. I expected the Hummer to be the size of a school bus. I went up and I looked it up, uh, and the, it's they, wide though. The wide is a hard thing to park, but it's they wanted it to be off roady, so it had to yeah. be the dimensions had to be shortened for off roading duty. The wheelbases are almost the same, but the overall length it's it's feet. We're measuring feet now, not inches. Yes. Um, mm -hmm, look, mm -hmm. I'm not about, I'm not into the Hummer truck. It's cool. It's not for me, but the SUV style to my eye looks pretty cool. And they've actually found some answers to the question of what a full size truck with a reasonably sized grill should look like. And I think everyone else is still struggling with that. Um, granted you expect it on an Escalade, but I just think the Hummer is a better looking vehicle. I think it's butch. I think it's squared off. I think it's sharp looking. I think it's nicely proportioned. The Escalade V doesn't look special enough to justify its tens of thousands of dollars of price premium over a standard Escalade. The Hummer looks outrageous. It's like, it's an off- You could always, uh, you could always Justin Bieber your Escalade. You know, you could just chrome it, the whole thing. Yeah. The Dubai look, yeah, definitely. I yeah, mean, you could the entire the entire Escalade, all chrome. But you won't have the only Escalade like that. Like that's been done a lot. Like, maybe <laughs> maybe ten years ago that was cool, but I think like spinning rims, that's kind of had its day. <clears throat> Just you saying. could uh, instead of instead of chrome, you could make it gold. You could do shiny gold. Diff okay, different yeah, thing. Yeah. Fair enough. Okay. <laughs> Well, not convinced. I'm going with the Hummer. I think it's it's faster. It's more powerful. You're, you're going to see less of them. And frankly, it's easier to drive around in places where people hate driving cars. So I do have to drive into Philadelphia sometimes. And Ooh, I would never want to drive the Hummer in there. No, it's a city designed for walking and horses. And that's the way it's been since 1776. Like, you know, the time the Hummer is so wide. That's the problem. It's the width of the Hummer, not the length. That's a problem. Yeah, I guess so. But again, the rear wheel steering on the Hummer is what makes the difference. And the Cadillac doesn't have that. And that's the one concession. It doesn't, it doesn't need it because it's so much narrower. <laughs> well, that's true. Again, the, I, like I was I was shocked in the Hummer truck, mind you, because the SUV is going to be a little shorter. But in the Hummer truck, driving around uh, Scottsdale, Arizona in that Hummer truck in suburbia, where parking lots are big and wide and not only are they big and wide but most of them are the double line parking lots where you don't just have one line between the parking stalls you got the w shaped line thing epically big parking spots the hummer took up every single inch of space it was absolutely ridiculous to get around in my other concern with the hummer suv and i won't know till we see this uh is the charging speed because the hummer truck will theoretically charge at 350 kw max it's still gonna take a really long time to charge because it's a really big battery Hummer truck or SUV rather won't do that because its battery pack is smaller and the charge That's rate true. is dependent on the number of modules they use. It's a smaller number of modules, so it's not actually going to charge as quickly. They haven't disclosed what that number will be, but it's still a pretty massive battery pack, still very inefficient. So if you want to gain 100 miles or 150 miles of range, it takes a really long time. Yeah, that's an important consideration, and I'm not going to lie. Like, folks out in cyberspace, if you're not too familiar with these things, 
the big battery, the fastest charging rate, and the 1,000 horsepower, that is a Hummer truck thing. You get an 830 horsepower max, a smaller, slower charging battery when you get the SUV. They're not equally capable. Mm -hmm. That is a good point. That said, it's still a hell of a lot faster and more powerful than the Escalade. And if you want the alpha dog, I mean, you really want the biggest and the best. This is an American performance SUV that you can compare to the fastest BMW M and Mercedes AMG and Audi RS products. And, and it's not qualified performance like with the Escalade where you have to say, well, there's no other body on frame truck like this. No, it's not as fast as the AMGs, but it's the fastest body on frame truck. The Hummer is just <laughs> ace all of that stuff. If you want to have the most, and let's face it, that's why anyone buys a super truck or a supercar, it's got to be the Hummer. <laughs> I will people. also say be pre be prepared to spend a lot more than people are thinking on the charging and spend more time on the charging. So, for instance, the Rivian that we have now is not an efficient EV by any stretch. Neither is the new Lightning. But the Hummer, driving it at 65 miles an hour on the highway, cruise control set, flat level highway, it averaged under one mile per kilowatt hour. That is more than... One or the that means the Rivian at, at its range is about three times as efficient. So the same amount of power that you're paying for will get you three times further. The same time on a DC fast charger will get you further. And more strange on the Hummer is that if you're an early adopter, you only get the slow charger on board. The 19.2 kW charger wasn't ready yet. So one hour on your AC charger is going to get you maybe eight miles, something like that. Charging at home is going to take a small eternity. Yeah, and let's just be real. If you're getting mileage like that, then you're basically saying the Hummer gets the same highway efficiency as a Ford Lightning pulling a trailer. Yes, actually, that is a true statement. In fact, the Rivian pulling 9,000 pounds, which is what I did yesterday, was more efficient going up 2,200 foot, a 2,200 foot mountain pass with 9,000 pounds in the back. It was more efficient than a Hummer just driving down the highway at 65. Okay, so in other words, if you want the most power, get the Hummer. If you want almost everything else, get the Escalade. Okay. Yes. Question. <laughs> Two more comparisons. Uh, let's talk a little bit about the new Nissan Z and the Toyota Supra. I, Ooh, full disclosure, good. I haven't driven the Z personally, but I know a lot of people are interested. Alex, you've driven them both verdicts. Did you drive the previous Z? The 370? Yes. Yeah. And have you driven an Infiniti Q60? I have. Do, do I now know the experience? Okay. Now you know this. Now you know the Nissan Z. <laughs> there we go. So basically, basically Nissan could not afford an all new platform. So what they did was they reworked the platform that the old Z was on already, which was in fact the Q60 platform. But it shares more with the Infinity than it did before in terms of the suspension design and things like that. And then they just borrowed the Infinity engine right out from the Q60 Red Sport, jammed it under the hood of the Nissan Z, made it a two-door coupe rather than a four-door, or sorry, a two-door four-seat vehicle. So it gives you a little slightly tighter dimensions. And that's really the, the combination of things going on there. So it has all the powertrain feel and tuning from 
the Q50, but then it has the tighter dimensions of the previous generation Z wrapped in some newer sheet metal, etc. If you are a purist and you are sad and ashamed that Toyota went to BMW to build the Supra, then absolutely the Z is for you because this is 100% Nissan, except for the transmission, and which is Mercedes. Um, but if you want the better car, I think I like the Supra a bit better as, as a car. As a Supra, that gets a little tricky because maybe I wish there had been a bit more Toyota involved, but name off the car as a car, I prefer the Supra a bit, just yeah, here. I'm actually with you on this because the Supra's got everything going on on paper. It weighs 125 pounds less. It's rated for more torque and comparable power, but we all know that the 2021 to present Supra mm -hmm. is leveling out almost 400 horsepower and over 400 pound-feet of torque at the wheels, which means the wheel number yeah astronomical even with an eight percent correction mm -hmm. you're looking at like 450 460 pound feet of torque and like 415 to 420 horsepower nissan's yep, out typical bmw well there you go <laughs> typical bmw yeah and, and nissan that engine has always been peculiar in the red sports the q50 red sport q60 red sport it comes across as needing some extra pep. It doesn't feel like 400 horsepower should. Now it feels better in the Z than it does in the Q60 Red Sport. The Q60 Red Sport's bigger. The whole experience is a little bit different. The nine speed certainly helps uh, in the new Z rather than the older Jatco transmission that we have in the Q50. Hopefully the Infinity lineup will get that transmission at some point in the future. But it's it's kind of an awkward combination of things. The engine's not my favorite. The transmission's not my favorite. Mercedes really just needs to stop building transmissions. Let me be perfectly honest there. No Mercedes transmission has me over the moon. They're all perfectly acceptable. There's nothing wrong with them, but there's nothing, oh my God, I must have about any Mercedes transmission currently. They're all just a little bit too funky, a little bit too clunky here and there. And all of that translates into the Nissan. Nissan does do the software on the Z. And I... I will also be honest that this is the best software that any Mercedes 9-speed has ever had. Just like back when Nissan was using the Mercedes dual-clutch transmission in their Infiniti QX30 thing, whatever that thing was called, that was the best software that transmission ever had. So clearly, Mercedes should just stop using their own transmissions, buy ZFs, or if they really must go down this road, have Nissan write the software for the transmission. But Nissan just should kick that engine to the curb or fix it. I'm not clear what's wrong with it. 400 horsepower, three liters, twin turbos. It all sounds good, but when you really feel it, the torque curve and the torque peak, the number itself, isn't that great. And they they spin a story around, oh, you know, we have turbo speed sensors that was necessary for the power on the engine. But why is it that nobody else has turbo sensors, turbo speed sensors, and they make way more power than you out of the same displacement engine? It seems like an odd choice. For them. And it, it gets a lot weirder too because the paper torque figure at the crank for the Nissan is 350. The the measurements, <laughs> yeah, the measurements on the Supra suggest it's making 450 at the crank. And just as important, the Nissan only makes its power on 93 octane, which you can't get everywhere all the time. And that's really important because this slants things even more in Toyota's favor. And that's before we start talking about the Toyota 
in 2023, which is going to have a manual transmission option, which was the only moat that Nissan had separating its sports car from Toyota. Because once, even if right. it's not a great manual transmission, and we know from BMW, it's mostly not. But the fact that the Toyota has it. Right. I, I mean, and I will what? say one important thing to remember when we're talking about the octane ratings on 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 the engines that we're discussing here. It's not a hard and fast rule. So this is important. So 93 is not available in every state, but if you live in a fair weather state, it's not required. You will not need 93 octane to get that power level because it's not an on off switch. So your actual power delivery is going to be based on environmental factors. How hot is the engine? How hot is the air intake, et cetera? Can the vehicle compensate with timing? And at what point does this timing compensation then affect your actual max power output. To be honest, the vast majority of engines that are sold in the United States, as long as it's about 70 degrees outside, doesn't matter what kind of power, what kind of fuel you throw in it, it will produce the rated power output. As things get towards 80, 90, 100 degrees, then it starts getting a little bit more critical. By the time you've gotten to Phoenix, then you really do need that higher octane level to actually get that kind of performance, if you can even get it there at those atmospheric temperatures. Uh, if you're 120, 125, 130 degrees, you're probably not gonna be getting maximum power regardless of what kind of fuel you could put in your vehicle, even if it's 100 octane. I'm assuming that 80% of these things are all gonna be sold in Southern California. So maybe I'm just assuming <laughs> it's gonna be really hot out there because no one in the Northeast is buying a two-door sports car uh, to daily. I mean, who knows, maybe, maybe someone is. I live in the Northeast, so it's possible. Um, but I, I do think a lot of people it needs all wheel drive up there. <laughs> yeah, well, maybe that's that's next on the wish list. Please, Toyota or BMW, make that happen. I um, somehow would not be surprised. I mean, Jaguar added all wheel drive to the F type and their sales, uh, you know, north of the snow belt just skyrocketed a, a, a tiny skyrocket, mind you, because yeah, Jaguar sales are minuscule. They sold five more, which doubled their sales. The thing is, though, with the F-Type, you need it because once you get into the senior supercharged engine, uh, you can't even control the car if it's just rear-wheel yes. drive. There is so the much ball. torque. Yeah. I think the Jaguar engineers just looked at that torque curve and they were like, well, you know, what's wrong with 500 pound-feet of torque at 900 RPM? That sounds like a lot of fun. Let's just do it. Do it. Throw it so all in there. I have to ask this because it is a major factor. Which car looks better to you, the Toyota or the Z? Because with the Z's $5,000 discount. I like the exterior of the Z better, I think. The semi-retro vibe, I'm kind of good with. The Supra, from some angles, does look a little peculiar, just because of the proportions of the BMW on which it is based. There are some angles where... And maybe that's just because I saw the original Super prototypes from Toyota. And it was this, imagine, you know, a six foot five muscly dude that has an Italian designed custom tailored suit made for him. And then you put that suit on, I don't know, Donald Trump or Barack Obama or someone that is not shaped like this at all in either direction, skinny, too large, et cetera, it's not going to look right. And that's what's going on with the Supra. It was this muscled, chisely look. It was big, too. And then they actually created the Supra out of the Z4, and everything had to get shrunk down, and the proportions just don't quite look right. Yeah, like that, link, that last 
Lincoln Continental, we kind of got to the point where everyone loved the show car and whatever they had to mm -hmm. change, a jump from the show platform to the production car changed everything about the way people responded to the car. I'll say, you know, this is, cars... oh, no, keep going. I'll, I'll say this is going to, this is going to date me, but I'm going to do it anyway. Do you know what shrinky dinks are? No, I have no idea. No, my God, you don't know it. Holy shit, I'm old now. Uh, so shrinky dinks were these things, these plastic disc things that you could draw on and using the correct the correct media. You would draw on the shrinky dink and you'd stick it in the oven and it would shrink. You know, hence the name shrinky dink. At any rate, but the what you drew and what it ended up with, it was never quite right. Somehow it would shrink differently in proportion and it just didn't look as you had intended. Is this like the Teddy Ruxpin, like Cabbage Patch Kid era that preceded mine? Like, I'm, I'm a child of the 90s. Was this an 80s thing? It was, I think, a 70s thing that continued on into the 80s would be my guess. Um, and they yeah, came in all kinds of different sizes. They weren't just round. They were like... I remember as a kid, my mom bought a set of like uh, shrinky dinks that were like little cars and you could like paint the car, the different areas in the car thing. And then it shrank and they all looked like a car had been in the sun too long. <laughs> so basically like the interior of a Ferrari in Miami heat or what happens to the interior yeah. of a Ferrari in Miami heat. But um, yep. besides Ferrari's dashboard covering woes, I definitely know what you're talking about because that is exactly what happened with the Supra. I'll be perfectly honest. Both of these cars, the Z and the Supra, have wince-inducing front ends. I loved everything about the shape of that Z until I got to the front. And then I feel like I'm looking at the yeah. insert, like the, the, the space where you should have inserted whatever the grill design was. Like, like the panel is missing. And I'm just I'm looking kinda okay the with it. They say it's I'm a kind of okay thing. with it. It's it's a retro -y thing and it's meant to be really square. And of all of the available strange looking grills we have up front, I'm 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 kinda okay. I, I mean it's almost I, I realize that the Supra ha, is uniquely challenged up front. And I can't understand why this F1 reference was used because Toyota's F1 program was eminent. <laughs> Forgettable. But I almost feel like it's the front end of the Morgan Arrow 8 where you love everything until you get to the front and then your jaw just drops and your stomach turns. Um, but oh, again, see the Morgan, right? the Morgan looks fine if you're looking at it exactly head on, like straight on. No other angle. Don't turn a degree straight on. It's OK. The moment you start to turn, you realize that its eyes are looking at each other. It's cross-eyed. And that's before you realize, wait, those are new Beetle headlights. And then it gets, then yes. it gets really sideways. <laughs> so I guess right now, if I had to buy one of these things, if you get the Nissan Z and you get it with the performance pack, you're going to pay like $51,000, Um, The raised wheels look awesome. There are a lot of credible components in this package that add some value. There's only one power plant available, which I like. It's the big one. Uh, but as soon as the Toyota gets that manual transmission, I don't see why anyone would buy the Nissan. Because frankly, I don't understand the prejudice against the BMW parts. If it were the other way around, I'd be like, yeah, obviously. But if you said in the 90s, hey, Tim, you're going to be able to buy a BMW for the price of a Toyota and it's a full-on performance model, I'd be like, that sounds pretty good. Like, that sounds pretty yeah, good. Yeah, with, with Toyota warranty and dealer support, it's not that bad of a deal. I might be convinced 
to get a Z without the performance pack. I don't think the performance pack is that great of a value because for the extra cash, I would just buy a regular Z and mod it. You know, they decided not to give what what Nissan could easily have done is borrow the 300 horsepower tune of this exact same engine from Infinity because they have that as well. They could have made that the base model and they could have made the performance model 400 horsepower, but this might have cost extra money because they would have had to have emissions tested them and, and done other testing separately from them because it's not quite the same engine. There's some extra control systems and different turbos, etc. But they didn't choose to do that. They gave the base one 400 horsepower. So I would buy that and chip it and do some other stuff to it. You could you could upgrade the wheels and the tires massively beyond what the performance pack already gives you. You could do brake upgrades, honestly, less expensive as well. That whole package with more power, brake upgrades, tires, wheels, etc., would cost you less than the performance pack. And all you'd be missing is the limited slip in the back, which you probably could uh, take care of yourself aftermarket too. Or you could get a five-year-old C7 Corvette. But I think the one to own is probably going to be the eventual Nismo version of the Z. But bold prediction, it's going to be both a better performance car and way, way, way too expensive. Time will tell. I am curious to see if they decide to push the envelope further with the Z instead of trying to do another GTR, which is really old right now. Yeah, I think that they're going to be done with gas-powered GTRs. Who knows? Maybe it comes back as an EV of some kind. But I'd be genuinely shocked, just as there will be no direct follow-on to the NSX and no direct follow-on to, like, the Subaru STI, I think it's safe to say that there will not be another, like, gas-powered GTR. I'd be very surprised mm -hmm. if that slot's in the top of the Z anytime soon. I think they're basically going to do what Ford did when they're like, look, we're only occasionally going to have a Ford GT, so we're not going to have a full-on <laughs> car all the time but the mustang will get these iterations that take it up to 700 horsepower and that's going to be our hero car and, and i think that's what the z is going to be i don't see it ever getting 600 horsepower or anything crazy but 450 maybe 400 pounds feet of torque um maybe a much more aggressive set of performance tires which it needs now i can see stuff like that happening that's easier to say sure but 20 years ago if you had told me that there would be an affordable affordable Dodge Charger and Dodge Challenger with 850 horsepower, I would have said you were nuts. And Chrysler proved that instead of resurrecting the Viper again, again and again, that it was much less expensive and you'd actually make money instead of lose money by just jamming stupid engines under the hood of an existing product. And that's exactly what GM and Ford have decided to do with their products too. Well, if you told me 20 years ago that the soon-to-debut Dodge Charger and Chrysler 300 would still be in production 20 years later, <laughs> I would have told you crazy, but that happened, so maybe you're right. Now it's time for our game Kicked to the Curve. Here's how the game works. Each person's going to get 45 seconds to decide which item that I provide them should be banished from the automotive industry forever, and they have 45 seconds to justify their answer. Each person is going to go once, and they're going to give their answer, and then the other person is going to give their answer, and we'll back and forth between the two like so. All right, contestants, who wants to go first? I will Any? bravely set forth. All right, Tim. Your first two items are turn signals, or air conditioning? Oh my, how, how do you live without air conditioning? Next question. That's, that's, I got two hands, right? No, you must, you must pick one. 
Okay. <laughs> I'm going to I'm going to lose the turn signals and choose the air conditioning because I have two hands. I also have open windows if I choose. So in theory I could signal. I have no biological capacity to compress and chill air. And if I'm living in America's Southwest, especially in this day and age, I need that AC. Easy call. You got 15 more seconds. Would... Do you have anything else? <laughs> no, I'm good. I'm You're good. Back. That's all you need. Oh, Honestly. he's good. He's done early. Okay. I'm I'm yeah. torn between these two because if you don't have air conditioning, your defogger doesn't work. So even if you don't live in a hot area, you kind of need the air conditioning. But then are you going to stick your hand out the window in the rain to, you know, turn signal on the freeway at 75 miles an hour? Um, so that's kind of tricky. We also did, as a civilization, live quite a long time without air conditioning. Um, I do love me some air conditioning. I have uh, I have witnesses. I keep my bedroom in the summer at around 60 degrees because I sleep best like a mushroom, cold and dark, you know, slightly damp. But that's another topic. Um so I would go, uh, I would go uh, turn signals, maybe. I'm torn. I live in an area where I could live without air conditioning. So I would keep the turn signals. Yeah, you do. Uh, you know, being in Atlanta, Georgia, I don't know if uh, the human population would survive without air conditioning here. It's like 100 degrees here today. All right, cool. Uh, next one. Alex, you're going to do this one first. V8 engines or manual transmission? I would kill the manual. I'm sorry for everybody out there. Uh, if it was a choice between V8 with an automatic, because you could still do a dual clutch, so you could do that. Uh, and, uh, you know, they're both on dying time here, I guess. V8s are still more popular than manuals. I think that's an easier call to kick that one out. Although the combination of V8 and manual is glorious and very American with, you know, Camaros and Mustangs, et cetera. Uh, even, you know, Chrysler had to get in on the uh, on the fun there with the Charger and the Challenger. Sorry, the Challenger, because the Charger never got the manual, but the Challenger did finally. So I would, uh, I would V8. I would keep that rather than the manual. So you're telling me I have, this is the easiest thing in the world. Forget the V8s. I can have a V12 with a manual transmission if I want seriously big bore action. So I'm going to go with that. Plus, let's not forget that, I mean, with a manual transmission and an inline six, you could have a Eurospec E36 BMW M3. You can have an E46 BMW M3. And heck, even McLaren and Ferrari are going to six cylinders. If I could have six cylinders. Well, you couldn't have the good M's. No, that's true. You couldn't have couldn't the good have... M's with the eight V8. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm going to go with a manual transmission and just lose the eight-cylinder option. Because in theory, in the electrified future, we may have manual transmissions. We won't have V8s. I, uh, maybe I should have made next time. Let's uh, in mental note here. Next time, let's rewrite the question because I sort of skipped the thought of V12s with the manual. So maybe we should have said no more than seven cylinders because that would have been more fun. And Vipers, too. <laughs> <laughs> Well, let's not forget, you know, you know, Cadillac also, you get the best of both worlds with the CT5V Blackwing, which I have had the glorious pleasure of driving myself. And I can say, if you can do both, you should do both. But that moves us on to the next one. Anti-lock brakes or cruise control? Tim. I'll lose the ABS because to be perfectly honest, if you set your cruise control at a low speed, you really don't need that much braking virtuosity. Cruise control is absolutely necessary for the great American road trip, which contrary to Alex's musing still exists. 
Uh, cruise control I consider to be a great convenience under most driving circumstances, whereas if I moderate my speed and I avoid wet conditions, I may conceivably never need ABS. Okay. Hmm. I uh, I would have to go with the ABS. I could live without cruise control. I would hate life. Um, I might die young, but I would go for the ABS because I have driven cars without functioning anti-lock brakes, and that is no picnic. I am not clear how we escaped the early 20th century with cars that had tiny little tires, bias ply tires, didn't even have radials yet, awful traction, and no ABS. That was a horrible, horrible combination. Even the early ABS systems, as bad as they were, were better than what we had before. The whole pumping the brake thing, I think that was just intended to try and placate you. I think it's like on the airplane when they're like talking about the brace position as we crash, because it's not going to help you when the plane crashes. I think the same thing with the pumping the brake thing. I'll add that my first car was an XJ Cherokee with two live axles, rear drum brakes, uh, no cruise control, and no ABS. The ABS, (laughs) the lack of ABS made it feel sketchy, but the lack of cruise control made me feel poor. So if I had to have one, I would opt for the cruise control. You'd actually be surprised. There are a lot of people that I know they they never use cruise control, and it's it baffles my mind. I'm like, even on like three hour road trips, they're like, no, I don't do it. And I'm like, this is why traffic happens, because then we get this accordion effect of people not staying consistent speed. You know, it's it's horrible. But I guess I saw this a lot today on the range test that we just did. Yeah, it's 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 shocking. I don't understand it anyway. All right. Disc brakes or an independent, I would assume independent rear suspension is what we're going to go with. I could live. I think that was independent suspension, period. That was oh, independent well, suspension, period. It doesn't, yeah, I guess. Okay, I can say that one again. Um, all right. The next one is disc brakes or an independent suspension. And this is overall, not even just the rear, front or rear. Well, I would say I could live with, I, I, I need the disc brakes. The, the disc brakes are absolutely critical because to me, and I'll be perfectly honest here, most vehicles are just fine with live axles unless you're in some sort of a performance car most people have no idea what's underneath we survived for half a century with two live axles underneath our cars and yet we couldn't stop to save our lives when you drive a really old car the thing that makes it feel treacherously dated is always the brakes not so much the suspension and that's the limiting factor on older cars so i would go with i would go with the discs i want the discs Right. You could have bigger drums. I mean, just because there were bad drums before, we could have better drums have with independent view. suspension. I am trying to think. I I am unaware if there is such an unholy combination that exists. Is there any car that you can think of that actually had four-corner disc drum brakes and independent suspension? I'm sure it must exist somewhere. Well, I mean, I think you could get a 1963 to 67 Corvette with drum brakes and four-wheel independent suspension. Oh, there we go. Couldn't have been that bad. I would probably go with that. I'm not a big fan of the ride quality in vehicles with the front solid axle. The rear one, I'm not so bothered by. The front one, not a fan. Uh, I believe, I might be wrong about this, but and this isn't four-corner, but I believe the Toyota Tacoma still has rear drum brakes and a rear live axle so you're halfway there 
That combo still exists, yeah. And yeah, the cool. the drum break in the Tacoma is logical. Actually, actually, to be honest, perfectly honest, rear drum brakes generally totally logical because they're a lot less expensive. They integrate mm -hmm. the parking brake well. They self-adjust, so they need less maintenance. And the rear brakes don't really do a lot of braking, so rear drum brakes don't really have an overheating issue uh, or a long-term durability issue. They're at they have a lot of advantages, not a lot of disadvantages, to be honest. It's just that at some point, the automotive market moved towards disc brakes being a feature, and everybody decided we must have the latest feature. Mm -hmm. Bold prediction. Drum brakes will make a comeback, front and rear, in the EVH, because they are self-adjusting, self-contained, mm -hmm. and weather-shielded. And lower friction. So I would not be surprised, to be honest, uh, if, if we saw at least rear drum brakes coming back in a lot of EVs for that reason. Uh, the, the way that a drum brake is designed, it has a spring that pulls the pad off of the drum itself. So you get lower friction losses. And with the disc brake, there's always some gentle rubbing right there because you're just hoping that the rotor is warped enough to basically kick the pad off the rotor. But there's always a little bit of contact. I have a challenge for you, Alex. Can you, in like one short sentence for, for listeners who don't understand or don't know how drum brakes work, can you explain it in a very simple uh, explanation? Because I didn't know until recently. I just was like, I'm, I'm never uh, going to need to know this. But sure. Some people so with a disc brake, imagine that you have like a dinner plate and it's spinning around and you just grab it with one hand. That's basically what's going on with a disc brake. With right. a drum brake, imagine your washing machine like a horizontal washing machine that's spinning around in front of you and you're reaching inside and pressing on the sides to try and stop it. That's kind of the difference between the two. So instead of this, it's like, eh. Yeah. Kind of. And for those that don't know what Brian is motioning, you're going to have to check out the YouTube channel. So this is a good segue yeah. to say be sure and subscribe to the uh, Auto Buyer's Guide podcast YouTube channel. Wow. I didn't even know I could do that. All righty. Next one. Locking differentials, which include limited slip or two... Oh, sorry. Let me say that one again. All right, the next one is locking differentials, which also includes limited slip differentials, electronic or mechanical. And the other option is a two-speed transfer case. I think... And who's I, starting I think on this one? Okay, I could do without the two-speed transfer case because in the future, when all vehicles that work off-road are going to have electric motors of some kind you are always going to be able to electronically synchronize the rotation of the wheels and you will not need gearing advantage with electric motors because they make enough torque from a stall so i can deal without a two-speed transfer case going forward i think there was a time when it was impossible to imagine locking differentials and dual range transfer cases in separate applications i think in the future you can do with just having uh, electric motors provide the torque as well as the synchronization mm -hmm. And Rivian's proof of that too, especially with the electric motors and everything. Yeah, I kind of uh, segue on this later, probably. I uh, I sort of agree here. I have never really used a two-speed transfer case much. I do currently on my Jeep because four high is totally fucked up, and you can beep that one later if you want to. Four high totally fucked up. Four low works. Uh, built the transfer case myself and I pulled it all apart and I saw that the Verilock unit was shot and I was like, oh, that is not worth repairing because that is way too expensive. I put it all back together, put a new chain in it and just happy with four low at any rate. Um, so 
but I will say that every auto manufacturer launch event, we have like these tiny little slopes, tiny little bumps that like, oh, put it in four low. And I'm like, what? What? Why am I in four low now? That's not that doesn't make any sense. But if you are extreme off-roading, then I would probably go with the two-speed transfer case before I went with a locker because you could do a lot with tires. Bold hmm. prediction number two. I think we're more likely to see uh, dual-range gearboxes on performance road cars in the future than we are to see them on off-road trucks. Think Porsche Taycan and you got the general idea. Right. Yeah. And I will say that the whole Rivian thing with four motors sounds like a good idea. Not actually as good of an idea in person as it sounds. Same thing with the Hummer EV and the tri-motor setup. So we'll talk more on that in another episode. And on that note, that is the end of the game. My name is Brian. This has been Kicked to the Curb. Signing off. Okay, talking about cars that need to come back, what cars would we revive? Because you reminded me right there. What cars would we bring back from the dead? I really wish someone would bring back a big sedan, a truly big sedan from the dead. <clears throat> Sadly, cafe regulations in the United States it did disincentivize that no manufacturer can do this and maintain compliance with the corporate average fuel economy standards. But I would love to see a 210-inch long Cadillac or a Buick or a Chrysler or a Lincoln, something like that. The, the Continental was just such a half-assed attempt. I was never a big fan of it. It was not big enough in any normal direction to even be used for executive transport. The back seat was tiny. The trunk was tiny. I want a big American sedan with a big American back seat that has the headroom of an F-150 big cab truck. So you could put, you know, six foot five, six foot six people actually could sit in the back. And then a trunk that you could use to transport bodies in. I mean, if this is not suitable for the mob in New York to transport people in their cement shoes, it's not a big enough sedan. I agree with you. And I would absolutely say that in the era of skateboard platforms and shared architectures between, you know, crossover intensive trucks and you know, car like vehicles, I would love to see Lincoln just say, look, it's going to be a prestige piece. It's going to be our answer to the Cadillac Celestic, but we're going to do a four door suicide door power convertible continental. We're going to do it on an EV platform that's ultimately destined for some sort of a Ford truck. I would love to see them bring that back as an EV. That would be absolutely awesome. Just like you say, big, grand, definitively a car and mm -hmm. unapologetically. Mm -hmm. Right now, I can't think of too many EV convertibles on the market, and I can't think of too many four-door convertibles that aren't also Wranglers and Broncos. And that would be a really know my cool logic. My logic says this is doable because look at, you know, the presidential limousine, the beast, it's limo looking, but it's it's a heavy duty truck platform underneath that thing. So this is totally doable. Just make a ginormous sedan, however you want to do it. Chrysler somehow managed it last. I mean, they were the last ones with a truly big sedan, because by the time, if I recall correctly, by the time the LHS and the New Yorker and the Concorde, et cetera, sailed off into the sunset, Cadillac was already pretty much done with anything big. Yeah, the Celestique, I guess, is the only thing on the horizon. If this is really what you want, a big American sedan. We saw some recent Fender photos, which didn't tell us much, but did confirm that the car is still a car and it hasn't become a crossover. So it's definitely going to be some sort of an exotic 
lift back. It's not going to be a classical three-box sedan, but this might be the closest we come to having a modern-day Eldorado Brome that's hand-built, a technology showcase, ultra-low volume. Mm -hmm. I think you might just get your wish on this one, Alex. I think we'll I see. Think that... I would love to see something that's more affordable. I mean, you could get, you can get a a an S class that's quite large. The the yeah. um, you know, the Maybach S classes. You can, of course, get a Rolls Royce and a Bentley that are quite large, but there, there's nothing in that fifty thousand dollar, forty five, fifty thousand dollar approximate price tag, which is the corollary for that two thousand Chrysler LHS. It was like thirty something and change. Uh, there's nothing in that 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 same vein that we have today. And that thing was ginormous. It was cab forward, so the engine was pushed way up front. It was a V6, not a V8. It had gobs of legroom. I did the numbers. The last generation long wheelbase stretched Maybach had about the same kind of legroom that that LHS did. And that one was 220-something inches long to get the kind of legroom interior that we found in that LHS. And the trunk was still smaller. Hey, your cab forward dream car exists, Alex. It's called the EQS. <laughs> and the EQS, EQS looks exactly like a Dodge Intrepid to me from the side profile. It's like it, that is exactly what they did. So apparently, when this when the divorce happened, Mercedes kept the design sketchbook, and then someone in Germany said, "Ah, oh, yes, we found this design sketchbook in the vault here somehow. I think this is the new Mercedes design language. You know, I think that uh, someone was very forward-thinking back in the '90s, and we should just use this." No one noticed the Chrysler logo on the back. Yeah, they kept all the good stuff, right? Well, it's, since we're stemming on Mopar, I'm just going to say they need to bring back the Magnum. The 2005 to 2008 Dodge Magnum, look, it couldn't be any easier. The plant is still open. The platform is still in production. Even the powertrains are still being built. All you got to <laughs> do is bring back a big high-performance wagon. And don't make it a, a volume car. Make it only two ways. One, Hellcat. Two, a, a, a Dodge answer to the Subaru Outback Wilderness, only bigger and plusher. Easily, this could be done. Easily, this could be done. And remember, you, you need Dodge product right now because since Dodge lost Ram, it's mm -hmm. been an absolute empty attic. It's been a wasteland of new ideas. This would be I great. am surprised that they never tried the off-road wagon thing. The Magnum sold. It had like a moment in the sun, and then it's it's it just you know faded fast. It did sell in Europe, if you recall, as the Chrysler 300 wagon, which was interesting. Oh, so yes. in Europe, they had the same body bits with a different front end and different hatch. And it was the, the Chrysler 300 wagon. It, I think, is dead now. Pretty sure it's dead. Oh, Haven't it, checked because who cares? <clears throat> yeah, I don't, I don't think it's like one of those deals where it's still made in China. I think you're right. Americans uh, think... hate wagons. <laughs> yeah, but Unless it's I... a Subaru, then Unless... they love them. Yeah, unless it's bring a trailer, and I'm sure those Dodge engineers are like crying every time they see an auction result for a Cadillac CTS wagon on, on bring a trailer. And I think this is the argument to make it in small numbers. Bring it back, make like 500 a year that are Hellcats, 500 a year that are just full-on overlanding wagons, and, and make it a prestige product because the Viper's long dead and Ram is gone. Dodge needs something like this. And again, the stupid yeah. thing's still in production. <clears throat> a sedan right now so and that please. brings us along to one of your questions that i saw on your list earlier which was the whole uh question about parts inventory and how long do car companies oh. keep things around 
Now, this is a myth. This is an urban legend. Alex. Uh, yes. Myth busted. So it uh, this question is basically around how how long are car parts available? There's this myth that there's a requirement that they're around for 10 years. This is not actually true, but this is part of the problem with low volume vehicles is generally speaking, most car companies will keep warranty parts inventory for the term of the warranty because the law says that the company either must do that or they must pay for whatever value of this problem is if they choose not to keep the part around. So car companies just keep the parts around because that's easier. But this means that all their parts warehouses in the United States have to have that part. It has to be available. Um, they have to you know, design and manufacture enough initially. So when you're talking about a, a small volume product like Acura NSX, for instance, it's much more expensive than simply the cost of the NSX itself. It's all of the warranty parts and, and the components and the training for all these places and the shop manuals and all of that. Everything that goes into that is, is quite expensive. So it's not just creating a new trim. But, uh, you know, car companies do it if it's priced appropriately, which is why we have so many niche models from the Germans. And this is why so many of those niche models are more expensive. So if you want a GLE and a GLE coupe and a GLE this and a GLE that and an E-Class without a top and a coupe one and a four-door one and a coupe four-door thing, etc., that's why those other variants are so much more expensive is because they're having to pay for those unique components that are separate in those warranty warehouses, et cetera. But yep, absolutely a myth. All that it requires is that if there's a warranty, there is some option or some solution for the customer in the warranty, but it's not necessarily a spare part. Even if it's a warranty that only was 90 days in, buy a car now, car is discontinued in 90 days, manufacturer could say, yep, sorry, no spare parts for you. You know, we're going to have to buy the car back or do something else to satisfy the problem. Yeah, this is definitely true. And a lot of times the best way to get parts for older cars and by older, I mean, 5, 10, 15 years is actually to go to specialist suppliers. Because What often happens after the last of the warranties have lapsed is that large automakers will sell everything from parts to shop manuals to diagnostics and tools um, and even sometimes the dyes to make the parts two third-party specialist companies that become effectively the only sources uh, mm -hmm. for these parts. And that's what happened after Studebaker uh, in Indiana stopped making cars in 1963. All of the parts went to specialists who continued to supply them, along with things like tools and you know technical papers, uh, to people who maintain them. So in this day and age, it's almost impossible to get, for example, a hood for a first or second generation Dodge Viper but if you want Studebaker Lark parts, there are still warehouses full of them and they're available. So it can be very hit mm -hmm. and miss um, regarding what actually stays available and, and what becomes yeah. essentially irreparable. And it's not necessarily a factor of age. It's often a factor of production and volume, as Alex mentioned. Yes, exactly. So, you know, if you have a, a Honda Accord, they're making hundreds of thousands of them a year. They're going to keep a lot of common parts around for those because there's some money to be had in this spare parts business. But even then, you're not going to be able to find an air vent for your 1990 Honda Accord at the dealer. You're probably going to have to go to the pick and pull. Yeah. And also, frankly, if you need parts for something that's relatively recent but really obscure, like an Acura ZDX, if you need like if you need 
glass for that car in five to 10 years, like Alex said, it's going to have to be a junkyard or you're going to have to find some ultra specialist company that bought the parts off of Honda mm -hmm. to supply a very small group of people who actually keep ZDXs running. Um, Where are you going to end up paying Honda. a lot for the glass? You know, because yeah, yeah. glass companies will keep the patterns around for a while and they will stock glass because it's a pretty frequent thing. Most glass, like windshield glass, tail glass, side window glass, that can be a problem. Uh, but be prepared to pay way more than you might expect for it, way more versus a comparable model from the competition that was in higher volume. Yeah, those Viper hoods, 25 grand if you can find one these days. So we have another question about why so glum, since you mentioned Honda, and they've come up a couple of times, why so glum on Honda reliability? Oftentimes when we compare Honda and Toyota, when we talk about future <laughs> reliability, uh, you're often pretty pessimistic about Honda and their prospects. Honda's, I think it's 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 data-based. Honda's definitely had some reliability issues over the last few years. They've had, uh, again, as we said before, even though recalls are not necessarily an indicator of reliability, Honda has had quite a few recalls. They've also had a number of, well, I wouldn't call true reliability issues. They're definitely stumbles in the eyes of the consumer. The nine-speed automatic transmission has not gone well. Honda's six-speed internally designed automatic transmission and their five-speed did not go well. The one and a half liter turbo has had some issues in customers' eyes, even though it's sort of a um, operating as designed thing. The oil dilution issues in the 1.5 liter turbo, etc. I think that Honda is not quite as nimble engineering and manufacturing wise as some larger companies. Keep in mind, Honda is a small car company. They're significantly smaller than Toyota, for instance. So they're, they're, they don't have the resources to pull on. And Honda chooses to partnership every now and then, but not in any significant way. And occasionally they get burnt in these partnerships, so they will stop for a while. So good answer, a good example rather, would have been some of the GM tie-ups that they had in the 1980s, 1990s, etc. And the ZF9 speed automatic transmission did not really go well for, for Honda or Acura. They got a lot of pushback from customers, a lot of pushback from from journalists, et cetera. And although not a true reliability problem, it definitely affected their reliability metrics because consumers did not understand there's nothing wrong with their transmission, but they would repeatedly take it in for transmission shift behavior, and that would repeatedly show up in their reliability specifications or reliability metrics, I should say. And last fall, JD Power released its automotive reliability survey and Lexus, Toyota, positions one and four respectively honda 27 down with a lot of recidivist uh quality offenders such as volvo volkswagen chrysler jaguar and alfa romeo which is not where you want to be mm -hmm. and was this the iqs or the initial quality or the uh the aqs i want to say that this was the aqs because i think this was a more expansive uh study the, the three-year one as i recall yeah it was a 2018 vehicles and 35,000. Oh, sorry vds yeah the, vds this, is their three-year one my bad yeah this was from 2018 forward they had about 35,000 participants um tesla for various reasons which included newness and vehicles recently released wasn't actually included but for the record mm -hmm. the worst on the list was land rover which yeah tesla's tesla's frequently not included or is included with an asterisk on jd power because because in some states in the united states 
Tesla does not give permission for them to get the information they need. So the way JD Power works is they need they get all of the registration information uh, databases and then they send out the surveys to recent car buyers. But they need to know who they are and where they are. And in some states, the manufacturer's permission is required to get that data and Tesla chooses not to give it. They're the only one that does not. So there's not a complete survey set for Tesla. Sometimes they'll include it with an asterisk, but usually it's not included. But yeah, Honda's, Honda's had a few stumbles here and there. They've also had some infotainment reliability issues. Their previous generation Honda Civic, previous generation system that we still find uh, in the NSX and a number of other vehicles, not overly reliable, lots of software crashes, lots of hiccups with CarPlay and, and Android Auto integration, etc. I like Honda's products in terms of their, their driving nature. I like their style. I like their interiors. I think the Honda Accord interior still is really well done, even though we're going to get a brand new one here soon. The Pilot is getting a little old. I like its all-wheel drive systems. I think Honda makes great engines. But some of their transmission design choices or transmission selection choices have been problematic. That 9-speed, it was a problem. Honda's new 10-speed is fantastic. It's lovely. It, it works well in the MDX and RDX. But the vehicles that don't get the 10-speed that still have the old 9-speed, like the Pilot and the Ridgeline, it's not the best transmission. All right. And then I have another oddball question that came up, and I think I could answer this one because I've basically done it. But can I put my late model sports car, exotic or gray market import on collector insurance? And the answer is, yeah, you probably can. Uh, these days, a lot of the largest insurers like American Collectors and Haggerty are going to decide whether the vehicle is sufficiently special interest uh, to be collectible. So they're going to make a call on whether your recently purchased Porsche or Ferrari or Lamborghini is quote collectible. And they might make the they might reach the conclusion right off the bat that if you have a Ferrari SF90 and it's brand new, it is sufficiently niche that it falls under their purview. Whereas if you have something like a 2018 Fiat 500e and you think it's really a lot of fun and it's undoubtedly a niche vehicle, they may argue that the <laughs> level of significance is insufficiently low and the daily driver factor too high for them to insure right. that vehicle. The same yep. thing with a smart car, same thing with a, a Scion IQ. The car could be very new and niche, but it might not fall under the guise of collectible. And that's a judgment they're going to make. In general, the more expensive, higher performance and special interest of the vehicle, the more likely a brand new version of it can be put on some sort of collector insurance. If the vehicle sure. is quirky but cheap, Chances are probably not because it's going to be viewed as a daily driver. All right, Alex, folks need to reach out to us. How can they find you online? So be sure and find us in all the social media places. Of course, you know, the YouTube channels. If you haven't already subscribed over there, EV Buyer's Guide, Alex and Autos, this podcast, YouTube channel as well, Instagram, Twitter, all those other places. Uh, and we'll see everybody next week.